Welcome to episode 4 of Right of Reply. In this episode, we're going to be talking about populism with an interview with Dr. Robert Emery. How are you doing today? Hello, good. Thank you very much. Dr. Emery graduated from Queen's Politics in 1990. He then went on to do his master's at the University of Victoria and PhD at the University of Queensland. He's been 15 years teaching in Australia before his recent move to Finland. He is currently a professor at the Peace Research Institute at the University of Tampere, Finland. He is a former research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Social Research and at the Space and Political Agency Research Group, both at Tampere University in Finland. He has taught courses at universities in Germany, Hungary, Australia, and Finland. His research interests divide into three main areas, nationalism, political communication, and political violence. These three disciplines covers a broad range of topics from international relations theory, questions about global security and terrorism, new media and various social media platforms, as well as problems dealing with changing nature of borders and nations. So before we get into the main questions, could you give us a definition of what you consider populism in the 21st century? Yeah, sure. Um, just very briefly, I would say something like this. Populism is a, is a way of thinking about how consensus-forming politics operates in, in various kinds of polities around the world. Uh, this can mean any number of things, but usually has the characteristics of, of positing an elite against some version of the common people, as it were, uh, and suggesting that these ordinary, everyday people take back political control of their polities and constituencies. So that's a kind of broad way to think about it. And uh, then, uh, coupled with that, there's something about a control that is somehow claimed to have been lost in some form or another. Uh, could be due to elites, big companies, interloper migrants, manipulative forces of, of many different kinds. And the key thing is that there is some kind of majority people, in quotation marks, being spoken of here. Uh, and this is not exclusively right-wing either. Now, Dr. Emery, to jump into some questions, how did this, uh, the most recent form of far-right populism develop? Well, I think, I think the most recent version comes about as a, a kind of uh, realignment of politics in the post-Cold War period. So, of course, this is not to say that these versions of populism are delinked from previous changes during the Cold War period. But here, if we think about how nationalisms have responded to changes in the global order, then we can see how far-right populism operates as a reaction to the latest blurring of political boundaries. And this blurring is interpreted by the far-right as an illegitimate force that seeks to somehow hobble or even to subordinate nation-states to a different kind of world order in which some perceived ordinary citizen loses all political power. Uh, this is often couched in some kind of racist or misogynist or anti-Semitic or any kind of, of combination of exclusionary language. And this form of far-right populism encompasses many forms of this, this type of political exclusionism that they, they often overlap. And we also need to remember that uh, populism itself was something supported by many kinds of people to try to get some version of inclusionist left-wing populism. Lots of intellectuals, political leaders, union organizers, and so on were concerned with this for several decades. But recently it's become almost exclusively a, a kind of far-right political project. 
that appeals to authoritarianism and some version of exclusionism, this type of exclusionism that I, I just mentioned, uh, anti-ethnic groups, anti-migrants, and, and so on, whoever happens to be a convenient enemy. So you don't really see um, any sort of left-wing versions today? Um, not in the last couple of decades. There's a few small things that have come out, like Podemos or something like this, but it's, it's mainly... Uh, something that's mainly a political project hijacked by this kind of uh, uh, far right. So I would suggest that no, there there isn't really um, uh, a kind of left wing alternative to this. Um, just a follow up question: um, Is inclusionism a effective way to fight this, or is is there a way to fight right wing populism? Um, well, this. This kind of depends on, on what your political goals are. So uh, those versions of inclusionism that, that, I would, uh, that I would adhere to, that I've mentioned previously, are uh, particular types of populisms that um, would have historically developed along the lines of, say, unionism or uh, uh, some version of a bigger political project like a peace movement or an anti-nuclear movement or something like this. So most of those types of movements were were based in a specific kind of political problem. And if we don't perceive those political problems to be uh, uh, something that we need to solve immediately, then we can't have a kind of left-wing alternative. Okay. So the next question, um, what are the prospects of a more global right, far-right alliance? Yeah, this is a kind of uh, interesting one. Um, uh, it would appear that a, a more global far-right alliance is quite difficult to maintain. Well, let me just give you a, a couple of examples on this. Um, recent attempts by some of these political activists, like, like Steve Bannon would be a more famous one, uh, these, these attempts to facilitate this kind of joining of European far-right parties demonstrates how they are uh, at incommensurable odds with each other. So, for example, in the, in the European context, they, they have incompatible worldviews. And I'll just mention a few obvious ones here quickly. Uh, it would be impossible, for example, to bring together a, a kind of Polish nationalist far-right and a kind of a German far-right. Uh, the nationalist populists in Poland have a real hatred for the German version, not only due to a kind of Nazi past and the current neo-Nazi link, but also the fact that the German far-right equates uh, Turkish immigrants with Polish immigrants, both being an inferior people, not deserving of, of living on German soil and mixing with German blood. So this is incommensurable. Similarly, the Polish nationalist far-right sees their German and Russian counterparts as invaders looking to take over the Polish territory. Now, there's plenty of cognitive dissonance here, um, as there are neo-Nazi Polish nationalist groups who talk about an all-white Poland and so on. But the fact is that this kind of racial ideology is incompatible with their counterparts in Germany and Russia, as is their territorial ambitions. So there are lots of examples of this. Uh, uh, Hungarian and Slovakian right-wing populist groups are basically counterposed to each other since they disagree on the very origins of their nations in the same way that Romanian and Hungarian far-right populists do. Even inside assumed ethnic cohorts, such as Hungarians, many far-right 
Hungarian populists in Romania believe in the independence of their historical territories to the degree that they they do not adhere to this greater Hungarian greater Hungary thesis, which posits that all ethnic Hungarians ought to be in a single nation. So these kinds of historical grievances, coupled with these differing worldviews on national origins, have so far kept these groups apart. Uh, that's not to say that they won't find some sort of cooperative space somewhere, but the question is where, and I, I think at the moment it is just too difficult for them. So do you think that there's really kind of like nothing in common at all with these like very like ethnic history-based and like land-based and national origin-based um, types of populism um, in comparison to like um, a British or like a US populism, which I feel like are based on very different things. Uh, well, yes and no, of course. So the answer to that is is uh, is, is both and neither. Uh, and and just as a kind of you know uh, prelude, um, a good political scientist always answers a question like that. So it's it's yes and no. It's neither nor. It's all of these things all mixed in together, and then we try and sift it somehow, sift sift the whole thing out, right? So uh, if I just give you a couple of examples, then let's let's take a, just a quick look at the British one and and part of that stuff that that was uh, so powerful in terms of, of motivating Brexit. Um, it appeared to be the case, and 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 we can uh, take some of these examples to be you know not hundred percent. Um, uh, examples that only illustrate, you know, the the uh, solidified ethnic groups or something like this. I'll show you what I mean in, uh, as I go through this. So, for example, in the in the whole Brexit problem, there there didn't seem to be a, a kind of a, a general problem with uh, migrants from, say, the Caribbean or who were uh, obviously people of color of some kind or another, and people who had migrated several generations previously, there didn't appear to be problems with uh, people coming from various parts of, of, say, Africa. The problem was with uh, uh, the perceived larger numbers of Romanians and Polish and uh, uh, even even Swedish migrants, people who, who quite obviously stuck out as being non-British, whereas people from the Caribbean or people from parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa uh, were not considered to be non-British migrants. So the reason I raise this as an example is, is to, to demonstrate that these sorts of enemies, these sorts of outsiders, uh, the sorts of, of uh, groups that can be chosen by some sort of far-right movement can, can almost be anybody. It, it's literally the case that you can find a situation where uh, it, it so, sometimes it just seems random, a kind of a random choice of an outsider. So it's not quite the case that in the UK and in the United States uh, they have those sorts of, of historical linkages. So whenever you use this kind of blood and soil argument, and we've seen this you know, going back to kind of the beginnings of uh, early versions of, of fascism, so 100 years, 120 years, this kind of thing. Whenever you use these sort of blood and soil arguments, then uh, it's, it's not a real thing. It's just made up. And because it's just made up, the enemies can then be just anyone. So they can kind of pick and choose. Right. 
So on to the next question. Uh, has Canada managed to avoid a far-right upsurge? If so, how has this manifested itself? Well, I, I think that uh, I think that Canada has been one of the few lucky places, one of the few lucky countries in the world, because they have in, indeed avoided uh, the, the major problems, this kind of upsurge that, that occurs with this sort of far-right populist wave around the planet. Um, uh, even even Australia has its own version of a kind of a small but vocal far-right populist nationalist movement. There are a couple of other examples where the far-right populists have, have not managed to gain a foothold, but Canada remains as, a, as an interesting example. First, there's no obvious far-right populist group in Canada that has some version of a political party representation. So... Uh, some political parties flirt with the ideas that we, we've seen elsewhere. Uh, some of them seek to attempt some kind of exclusionist and covertly racist policies. Um, uh, but they've not really achieved the kind of the widespread support that we see in other places. So there's no organized political party that then is able to push these, these sorts of platforms forward. The constant and regular appeal to having a, a basis in being an immigrant society based on mutual accommodation, as as expressed in this, this Canadian liberal pluralist model of multiculturalism, has really superseded the integrationalist appeals of other polities. So I think this is the key to this. Um, so far, this has been successful, although not without conflict inside Canada. So these are... are uh, uh, never without danger. And generally, there's a kind of an important attachment to this because generally countries that trust their governments and uh, trust their professionals will have more success in avoiding a kind of far-right populism from organizing. So it's an important point to make. Uh, it's important to trust doctors and teachers and journalists and university researchers and police and so on. When this happens, if you have a high level of trust maintained, then quite often there's success in avoiding these kinds of pitfalls of far-right groups that start to organize, you know, really basic things like vigilante groups or, or uh, producing their, old, their own alternative versions of history. Then uh, the public doesn't accept the, the presence of a vigilante group because they already trust the police. So this is a kind of, uh, this is an important thing to, to maintain in contemporary societies. And I think Canada has, has managed to do that to a great extent. Now, just uh, furthering Bibby's question, is there anyone else who has managed to uh, avoid the destructiveness and violence of these kinds of movements? Yeah, I think so. I think depending on how we view this, I, th I think there are some good examples. So um, uh, what I mean to say is, is, is that if we accept that most places are going to have a political voice that begins to claim some version of exclusionary nationalism based on an attempt to organize what might be considered, uh, you know, ordinary people against this manipulative elite or against some kind of insidious interlopers, then we can see a few places that have managed to, to resist that. So I can think of like the relative prosperity of Slovenia kept it pretty safe from far-right populism and political violence since, since their independence in, in 91. And I think only recently has, have there been a few noisy politicians trying to disrupt this, but so far that disruption is, is not moving forward. 
New Zealand already has a, a kind of well-established nationalist force that always had a strong indigenous Maori presence, um, which makes it an, an interesting political problem. But they also have set up a kind of bicultural, bilingual approach that is in many ways similar to Canada, although it has important differences. Um, this kind of bilingual, bicultural approach to, to society, which is also much more along the lines of what uh, this kind of liberal, pluralist, accommodationary, inclusive model of society that, that exists in Canada. So it makes it possible to avoid far-right populism. And I still say that uh, Sweden and Finland, for example, as, as well as Singapore, for, for uh, perhaps slightly different reasons, also have high levels of public trust and have managed to maintain a kind of social cohesion in the face of attempts by far-right populists to, to disrupt that social cohesion. Of course, there's a much larger conversation to be had about thinking about how these different places might compare to each other. But these are, these are just a kind of uh, a few beginning examples. So um, kind of going back to Canada for a second, so you talked a lot about um, kind of like the public trust um, in authority. What would you, so with, um, with First Nations people in particular in Canada, um, there isn't a high level of trust for the police or government there. And then also with um, some of the recent events of um, like kind of harassment and like issues with mosques um, in Quebec in particular and um, the Quebec ban on religious symbols. And then also um, the recent election of Doug Ford, would you say that kind of factors like this and examples like this are moving into kind of a U.S. influence direction, or would you say that you know Canada's strong enough to resist that and like Canada's going to be fine? Well, I'm still optimistic, so I think that the examples that you mentioned, uh, taken on their own, are certainly symptoms of of uh, the possibilities of a greater problem. There, there is no doubt that, uh, like Australia in the Canadian context, there is no doubt that there is uh, a problem with First Nations, Indigenous peoples, um, in that there's a long history of them being structurally produced as an underclass. And there's no doubt that they have very, very good reason to not trust the government, to not trust public institutions. Uh, there has been a long history of, of conflict there. Um, uh, I, I still remain optimistic about this. I don't think that um, uh, that kind of conflict or that kind of level of uh, disagreement and that kind of level of historical grievance is going to somehow move into this kind of uh, far-right populist direction or something like that. So, yes, those are, are quite clearly specific and particular political problems that need to be addressed, that normatively ought to be addressed. Um, but that's not the same problem. Uh, I think it's a categorically different problem to these sort of far-right uh, populist movements and things like that. Doug Ford, it maybe is similar to that. Um, the idea that uh, uh, those sorts of elections, I mean, he ran a kind of a classical election in the same way that we would see many of these elections run in the United States, the kind of positing of himself as a political figure 
uh, running against the elites. You know, he's sort of the common man, and he is a man, so he is part, it's a very male kind of way of doing this. Um, uh, he positing himself, uh, you know, as, as somebody who's working for the common person, common people against the kind of corrupt elite. So this is an often heard message. Uh, it's not always so bad if those kinds of elections occur and the, the votes swing in one direction or another direction. It is bad when those votes swing in a particular direction that guarantees the type of exclusionary politics so that they bring in overtly racist policies and things like that. And I think with Doug Ford, I think, I think with the, the, uh, the, that kind of stuff it remains to be seen if he can do anything. Often these types of, of populist figures uh, will run at the mayoral level and um, win elections in major cities. And then sometimes, you know, they have their spectacular failures and things like that because they run on these populist tickets and then can't take it any further. This is a quite a common occurrence in, in uh, the kind of swings and roundabouts of politics. And I don't think we need to immediately worry. We'll have to sort of let these election cycles play out. The Quebec case is, again, different. So the Quebec case is always being different. Um, uh, their move towards taking that idea of being a separate society and uh, trying to push that along electoral lines and then creating these kinds of special rules for that separate society is, is a challenge. And the religious symbols question is a perfect example of that challenge because uh, I don't think any reasonable person in Canada is uh, threatened by uh, a hijab or someone wearing a cross, or uh, I don't think any reasonable counted as religious symbols, apparently. Well, yes. So this is the other thing, right? So it's a clear attempt to to redefine this stuff, to now say, well, uh, uh, these these people are somehow outsiders. Um, and there's a whole look. There's a whole big discussion to be had on this because it it is interesting that it's a it it happens to be. Uh, gendered and quite biased against one particular group because no one's going around saying we need to ban nuns clothing uh, and no one's going around saying that uh, um, we need to control what Sikh men do in public life. Uh, that seems to have been already accommodated a long time ago and it would be an interesting thing to see um, uh, you know, the ban on religious symbols or something like this to include nuns, you know, to include a nun's habit, which effectively is exactly the same thing. It looks exactly the same as a job. It would be interesting to see a ban that talked about that uh, or to see a ban that said, well, um, uh, uh, the Sikh headgear is also something that we need to ban because they're not doing that. Uh, obviously, this kind of accommodation has, has occurred a long time ago. So it does appear to be targeting a, a single and particular group. And that single and particular group is, again, um, women who are uh, Muslim who are, and who have overtly, somehow overtly, uh, cultural religious symbols in public life. And, and I, I think it would be a great tragedy if this went any further down this path. Than it has already gone, 
And again, I'm optimistic that uh, sensible people in, in Quebec will also see that this is not uh, the multicultural accommodation that liberal pluralist societies ought to be doing in a normative sense. Okay, so the next question is, what are the main dangers and, and or pitfalls of this populist far-right resurgence? Well, I think there's a couple of big ones, um, uh, and then a bunch of corollaries. So I'll talk about a couple of them here just quickly. I think that uh, where we are today, in a kind of historical sense, uh, that one of the main dangers is, is this uh, delinking of economies from each other. Uh, uh, it's obvious that it's an increasingly globalized world. It's obvious that economies are increasingly linking. This is problematic because the technologies that we use are, are moving in, in a linked direction, not a delinked direction, and we rely so heavily on these technologies. So uh, we're moving away from disconnected communities and isolated groups of producers of goods. The global economy cannot function with these isolated producers of goods. Delinking economies may well work to place economic power in the hands of small groups of people who seek to control the communities around them for their own purposes, which is, I think, what at least what partially Brexit was about. Um, uh, but this is not going to benefit larger numbers of people in those communities. And so far, we know this from decades and decades of experience. This kind of delinking of these economies in the modern period and and up right up until our contemporary times has proved to be a good way for authoritarian governments to develop. So I think this is a great danger here when we start to see uh, governments using these tactics and techniques of far right populism to then opt out of greater cooperative arrangements. Then that version of isolationism will. Uh, push their economies quite far down. So it's it's taking this linking out. I think for me then um, perhaps an even larger threat and and what I would claim to be sort of the second threat, this, this big thing that's happening is the threat of large-scale violence and even war. Uh, partly due to some of the factors we mentioned previously, these incompatible worldviews of far-right groups in terms of national origin, in terms of legitimate control of territories, the separation of ethnic groups, and even the destruction of these various ethnic groups is probably the most serious threat for me. There's always a threat of violence of, of uh, some kind in, in far-right populism that seeks to destroy human beings that don't share their own worldview. So this is something that's ubiquitous. Of this, there's no doubt. So while there's a good technocratic argument for shying away from delinking these these nations from other nations economically, there's a much more visceral problem about the threat of war and violence. Because as we know, war is is the great destroyer of all things. And so, of course, many of the the most extreme far right groups they welcome that. So this is what they they welcome as a kind of you know, cleansing of, of their moral universes. And I think that's a that's a, a great, great danger when people start to use this kind of terminology, um, justifying 
these levels of violence, then that's when when something really uh, is is changing in a quite dangerous way. Right. So, so what does this mean um, for the ways that we can actually deal with facts today? Are we in a post-truth, post-fact world? Well, this is a problem, of course, and, a, and it can be quite an exasperating problem. Um, uh, perhaps it's not so new. Perhaps if we want to think about this uh, um, in a more optimistic way or something like this, or a way that might open possibilities, uh, perhaps we can think about it as, as it's a kind of accelerated problem in that there's a lot of junk to filter out. There's just simply a lot of junk that comes very fast and you've got to filter this out. Uh, there, you know, if we, and if we take this even further, we know, this is some of the research that I do, uh, we know that there are groups and organizations that look to capitalize on all this by actively producing fake news stories and then selling them on to organizations willing to use the material to further their own agendas. And then this is all again exacerbated by, by major news corporations looking to fill airtime and looking to get people to pay attention to that airtime. So far-right populism then fuels this as a kind of Gordian knot. So we have experts who are trained in a field delivering a message about their research then we might have them interviewed by a media outlet, but the message is not interesting enough to get attention and traffic. So the most extreme counter view is then sought out. And then they're placed beside each other as if they were both legitimate, right? Um, the far right loves this process and benefits a great deal from it as their own views can be aired and can be claimed to be somehow legitimate. And so it's a process of legitimating the most extreme view. And a, a main reason why we have this, this problem is that this kind of point-counterpoint style of political discussions are stuff that the mass media still uses. An expert-held consensus on climate change can then be countered by some radical right groups looking to make the claim that warnings about environmental disaster are really about a political elite striking at the common people. And they're then able to kind of whittle away this public trust that I spoke about earlier in a more general sense and offer some kind of consolation in, the, in this extreme right exclusionism, looking to mobilize people in a, in a different manner. And there are still reputable and legitimate news organizations, there's still reputable and legitimate researchers and professionals and so on, but it's become necessary for people to try and filter out all this junk and do so quite quickly before insidious political forces manage to, to mobilize the masses somehow. And there are many, many examples of this. And I, I think that uh, Brexit, for example, is a, is a big one, right? Because there was this capacity to mobilize these insidious forces and, and use outright lies, outright fake numbers, fake stats. They just made stuff up and then pushed this kind of right-wing populism and, in fact, uh, won the day on a referendum. So it can be quite dangerous. Building off that point, um, what kinds of political violence do you think we need to worry about in the future? Well, I think we've become distracted in many ways around this. Um, I think we need to be concerned with the, the destruction of cooperative endeavors to limit major arms production, and this includes nuclear weapons. So this is the big thing. 
we've become really distracted around, uh, you know, in the post 9-11 period with these terrorist groups and terrorist organizations that effectively, if you look at the statistics and the numbers and the levels of their influence, they are effectively quite small. Uh, we have a bigger problem. The casual way in which too many political leaders deploy weapons of mass destruction to engage in war in, in the Cold War period, uh, not that there's no war beforehand, was, was quite worrying. And then we take this further, wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the complete destruction of Libya, selling arms to dictators willing to use the weapons locally and across their own borders is really the biggest problem. Uh, you know, 200 years or so of modern warfare has increased our capacity to kill and deliver destruction. Terrorist groups, of course, play a role in all this, so I'm not saying they don't, but they do appear to be instruments of a much larger game of destruction. And we need cooperative endeavors of all kinds, at, at all levels, so at the local police level, at the national level, to ensure that weapons are limited. And we certainly use it at a supranational level to monitor and analyze what is happening, producing and selling armaments and weaponry, national groups, as well as some version of, of uh, national groups to increase their destructive capacity is, I think, the key text in the post-Cold War period. Having a localized conflict between Ukraine and Russia, having Saudi Arabia cause a famine in Yemen, uh, having a proxy war in Syria over the course of, of seven years, uh, are all symptoms of this same problem. So each of those, and then the other, other conflicts as well, but each of those can easily develop into greater and greater wars that, that need to be mitigated. These disasters of following this path of, of right-wing populism is this path of going down uh, somewhere ends of agreements, pulling out of these various cooperative endeavors. And I think that's, that's the big worry for political violence in, in the very near future, and, and I mean like in the next six months or one year or two years. Just a follow-up question: Is there uh, earlier you talked about Slovenia, how it, co it had completely avoided the populism rise in Europe? Um, is there a country which has, or efficiently, effectively um, recovered from a far-right populist movement in that country? Well, again, yes and no, because uh, these things period of time that. Uh, the, the major denazification programs in Germany were actually functioning quite well. So for a long time in the 50s and 60s, we thought that this was going quite well. Uh, and then we thought by the time we got to sort of the night round was complete. So we did see that happen. And, and for, you know, to a greater time, I think that we can say something relatively optimistic about far-right groups in, say, Italy and France, because what had happened for a long period of time was surgeons of, of the far-right or something like that, but they were quite small and quite minimal, and then they disappeared and went away. So I think we can look to examples, and we can look to various techniques. Now, uh, there's no single answer to this. So often we've heard kind of single answers to these, these things by saying something like, well, to any sort of far-right challenge or some, some sort of really crazy far-right challenge. But that's not quite true because there are a number of cases where, where that didn't work. Or you can talk about the alternative as well and say, um, 
there, there are examples is the you know is the universal solution or something like this and that may partially be true because certainly getting rid of hate speech and heavily regulating hate speech is Canada being one of them so it, it's uh, the answer again like uh, you know uh, we need to develop some kind of comparative aspect and then look at all the different comparisons and, and try and put them side by side and see which also in some cases uh, it seems that some of those far-right populist ideas haven't gone away so and sometimes there's they would surprise you so the kind of resurgence of stuff that's going on in the southern united states uh the strength with with which it has reappeared and come back in in recent elections um optimism so there are successes where at various periods of time these these things have, have gone away okay so the next question how has populism populism changed over the last 200 years well, in some ways, the techniques of populists are the same. So, uh, in some ways, this the the, the techniques are, are all same stuff being replayed over and over again. But the appeals to various constituencies might be different. So, for example, union unionist populism might use very similar messages in the mid 1800s about organizing factory labor and uh, fighting for better working conditions. Uh, unionist populism can be variously described as left-wing, since it may have originally operated as a kind of counterpoint to early industrial revolution capitalism, but it can also be seen to have a strong nativist element, since those early versions could also be uh, anti-immigration labor movements. Of course, this brings us you know, to, to the kind of obvious problem in terms of national boundaries. So how do we organize a factory for the benefit of workers if we are experiencing global economies as well as migration? Is the factory worker who migrates from one uh, national constituency to another legitimately able to use the local labor laws and so on? And these things have been variously tested over the, over the past several decades. Um, how would we organize a more left-wing populism that talks about properly dismantling capitalism and perhaps even the nation-state? So these are the big, big sorts of questions. Earlier versions of left-wing populism, and certainly those versions that developed as anti-monarchist and anti-capitalist movements uh, 150 years ago, were attempts at some version of, of post- or supranational movements. Uniting all the workers against exploitation by factory owners or uniting all people against environmental or, or nuclear catastrophe or war is a kind of left-wing inclusionary populism that was prevalent in the 1960s and 1970s, which of course developed much earlier. But th that has changed a great deal, and, and the overarching kind of populism that we have today is the one that's dominated by the radical right. So this version of, of the far right then seeks to popularize itself and has been uh, the most successful kind of populism in the last couple of decades in making itself a kind of universally understood movement. And they use authoritarianism and exclusionist politics of hatred of some group or another. So that's how they basically do this. Uh, so one can imagine an, an environmental movement that's dedicated to some kind of return to a traditional life Whoever that, how, however that may be defined, and as a kind of corollary to that, rejecting foreigners who bring the bad, unsustainable, environmentally dangerous way of life. 
So uh, you can see how these things can be shifted and changed over time. Environmentalism is not the the uh, exclusive purview of a kind of left-wing populism, but could also be moved, shifted into this current version of what we're doing in, in, in this type of right-wing populism at the moment. And a major part of all of this is our current inability to construct historiographies that go beyond national or ethnic narratives. And there's a kind of assumption that far-right populists can use that assumes that co-religionists, co-ethnics, co-nationals will always have some kind of a group appeal and that they can demonstrate how that group is threatened. So this is one of the, these kinds of um, contemporary conditions that we, that we seem to be stuck in. Uh, but of course, this is another long conversation. Maybe, maybe we can have that at, a, at another time. All right, uh, so that's it for episode four. Thank you, Dr. Emre, for taking time and joining us. Um, I've certainly learned a lot about populism today. Um, uh, we really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And that's it for episode four, Right of Reply, Managing Populism with Dr. Robert Imre. Thank you.